Hi, this is Pat Blythe, and welcome to Love the Music. Today's date is Tuesday, September 28, 2021. These are the Pandemic Interviews, Conversations in a Changing Time. Mitchell Field began his music career as the drummer for John Lee Hooker. In 1977, Field approached Bob Gallo of CBS Records with a demo tape of his solo work. Although impressed, CBS wasn't interested in a solo artist, and Field was advised to put together a band and try again. That's exactly what he did. With Dave Hovey on guitar, Jamie Larson on bass, Steve Coombs on drums, and Rick Lamb on keyboards, Hellfield was born. Locking themselves in a studio, they emerged two months later with new material and a new demo. From 1978 to their breakup in 1982, the band went through a number of changes, releasing two full albums and five EPs. Field finally released his first solo project in 2000. He currently co-hosts a live podcast on Vibe called Inside the Music, and when we're not in the middle of a pandemic, is extremely busy performing as a solo artist. A new Hellfield album is in the works with original bassist Jamie Larson and Paul Royce on guitar. Hi, my name is Mitchell Field. I founded the band Hellfield in 1978 in Toronto. We toured with the Triumph, uh, the Little River Band, and the Cars, and we performed with the Cars at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. And for the last 10 years or so, I've been performing as a solo artist, acoustic guitar and piano and voice. Currently, we're in the middle of recording a new Hellfield album with Jamie Larson, the original bass player, Mm -hmm. and Paul Royce, the guitarist. And uh, we're sending things back and forth. And slowly, uh, we have a new album. We've got about six songs completed so far. Uh, We've got another six... uh, on the back burner that we're working on. We're looking at maybe recording or re-recording some older stuff. And uh, we hope to tour next year. Wow, now that's a concert I would like to shoot because my husband shot you with the cars at Maple Leaf Gardens. I know that I would love to be able to shoot you somewhere, or I should say photograph you, somewhere around the Toronto area. That would be very cool. cool. It would. Cool. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I'll bet. What has been happening for you in the, in, the, in the past year, 2020? What did you expect to be doing? Well, I was expecting to be working. I was booked till uh, New Year's Eve of this year. Wow. Usually I do about 350 shows a year as a solo. Occasionally I might play drums with a band now and then. <clears throat> but basically as a solo for the last 10 years, I had built up a circuit And I was doing 300, 350 shows a year, sometimes two shows a day. So I was completely booked till the end of this year. And uh, my last gig was, I think, March 14th. And then I would start to get phone calls. This one's canceled. That one's canceled. And and after that, obviously, they were all canceled. So I I haven't played in 15 months haven't done a gig and it's the first time in my life I've ever had 15 months off I've always been writing or (laughs) 
touring or recording or gigging. Uh, but in a way, um, you know, I've been doing this since I was about 13. So in a way, it's nice to have a break because when you're doing 350 shows a year, you know, it's a lot of traveling, a lot of setup, a lot of teardown, and I don't mind it. But uh, it's kind of nice in a way to just have a break, to yeah. just be able to have some time to not be rushing around every day. As much as I miss it, uh, there was a huge part of my life that I've just been running and going and doing and like most people, especially musicians. And now because of this imposed break, uh, we have to be more creative to be productive. We have to look at other ways to promote. Um, actually, myself, I'm going to be co-hosting a new show called Inside the Music on the Vibe Live with DJB, and that'll be starting in about a month. Okay. And we're going to be going inside the music industry and talking about uh, touring, recording, and all kinds of things music-related. So that gives me an outlet. And uh, I've been writing, obviously, writing a fair bit. And, you know, just trying to stay positive, really. When you're performing with your solo act, are you touring right across Canada? Or are you, because you live in Montreal, so are you keeping to the Montreal area, Quebec, or yeah. are you right across Canada? No, only Montreal. Only Montreal. Keeps my cost down. This is true. So you're not because... performing solo outside of the province or outside of the city? No. I haven't performed as a solo outside Montreal for at least 10 years. Okay. I just, I have enough work locally. I mean, I might go as far as uh, 30 miles outside of Montreal, right. but that's about it. And luckily, because of this circuit that I built, a lot of the gigs are fairly close together. Um, and obviously, you know, in the winter, it's tough dragging equipment around in blizzards. And that's something else I don't miss. <laughs> <laughs> no, blizzard, snow, I don't miss at all. So you're writing and recording. Is any of what you're writing um, influenced by what's been going on for the past year, by the pandemic or by isolation? Well, that's a good question, because initially, when I first started to write, in fact, there was a period at the beginning of this where I just wasn't motivated to even pick up my guitar at all. Uh, simply because usually when I'm practicing or rehearsing, it's for a gig or it's for a show or it's for a specific situation. And when you have nothing booked and nothing to rehearse for, nothing to get ready for, uh, it takes some of that motivation away. And uh, I, I did find that when I was starting to write, a lot of the subject matter was this shutdown, lockdown, covid and I thought, well, yeah, I'll write a song about that. I mean, and then I, I got about halfway into it. And for whatever reason, I decided, no, I don't want to write about this. I, I might write about it in a more oblique way without being quite so specific in a, in a, in a more like a metaphor way. And so I've taken that song, I've put it on the shelf. And I think that obviously all of that's on my mind, but I've never written songs ever that were political or about uh, current events particularly. Uh, I've always written basically love songs. So to write that kind of song with, a, with that intent, it's not really how I write. I'd rather write something a little uh, airier, if you will, something a little lighter. Mm -hmm. 
So I, in my mind, I'm kind of going through the various packages that I could put these words in. But I don't want it to be all doom and gloom. And on the other hand, if it's an upbeat song, tempo-wise, it's kind of hard to get into that subject matter in a, in a, a bright pop song. Yeah. This is so true. I'm kind of sifting, sifting through the various formulas. But I certainly don't want to write four or five or six songs about this particular topic. Maybe one. Uh, and then I think, I, I think I'll leave it there because it, I, I can't get into that head. It's like... Yeah. You know, Bob Dylan, uh, Springsteen, uh, U2, there's a lot of political slant to their stuff. And I was never into that. I don't want to preach to anyone, especially on stage. It just, it was something I never did, and it doesn't appeal to me. I just want to rock. <laughs> That's what Hellfield did as they rocked. That's right. Virtual collaborations. Now, I'm assuming that a lot of this has been done, what you've been doing has been done virtually. Exactly. Between myself and Paul and uh, Jamie. How, how do you feel about that, that approach to recording and collaborating? Well, it's new or it's newer. Um, it's a little bit different. But, you know, people have been recording on the Internet for the last 10, 12, 15 years in some ways. So it's not really that new. Uh, I prefer being in the studio with the guys looking them in the face like we did in the old days. But the fact is a lot of records are just not made that way. They're just not made that way anymore. It's done more like this, five guys on a screen and sending bits and pieces. And it does work. It does work and you can accomplish the goal. Um, And obviously it's out of necessity now that we're doing this. But I, I'm, I'm kind of old school in recording. I really enjoy the days of us all being in the studio. We can all see each other. Um, there's a certain dynamic to that that comes through in the music, as opposed to the bass player does his bit, he sends you his bit, then the guitarist does that, and then I come in and sing a bit later. We can do it that way. Um, and we will do it that way. We have to do it that way. And uh, I'm getting more comfortable with it. Uh, the other guys are a little more adept at the technology, and I'm not really, I'm just starting to learn uh, that process. But if that's the way we have to do it, that's the way we'll do it. And on, on this particular album for Hellfield, the new album, we're in no rush. There's, there's nothing to rush about. We've got all this time. And so we're going to take this time to write the songs we want. There's no record company involved. I'm not getting pushed and pulled in all kinds of different directions by the label or the producer or management. This is us. Um, This is our record. And I'm quite looking forward to it. So am I now. (laughs) I'm here. How are you coping personally through all of this? It was quite, quite difficult uh, initially. Um, uh, depression, I would say, initially, because I live alone. Um, when you have nowhere to go every day and nothing to do and you can't be productive, I'm not used to that. I'm used to working a lot. And so at first I was like sleeping a lot. I wasn't showering. I wasn't shaving. I just like, I don't know. And then I decided that I wasn't become obsessed with this. As far, I mean, as far as all the work that I'd lost, I wasn't, wasn't going to think about that. Obviously, I can't start booking gigs as of yet, 
So that was off the table. And I decided, well, I'll just go with it. I'll just enjoy the break. I'll write my material. I have some income coming in, thankfully. And uh, because I always have a plan B, thank God. And but at first it was it was quite difficult. But then I've been through something like this before, Pat. I was in an earthquake in Los Angeles. Oh, really? And I lost my home. I lost everything except the clothes I was wearing on my back and my guitar and my dog. I remember we discussed this in a previous conversation. Yes. This was in January of 94, January 17, Martin Luther King Day. And I mean, 60 people were killed. 9,000 people were injured. $20 billion worth of damage. And I went from having a nice little home to uh, living in my car and isolation and depression. So I kind of been through this before. So I had some coping skills to get me through it because when you're living in your car homeless, uh, you're really at the bottom and you can either survive that and climb your way out, which I was able to, or uh, you won't. You're on a good playing field, a good level. You've leveled yourself out now with working on the album and working with James, etc. That's good to know. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a therapy in a way. Yeah. Live performance is definitely the key to the development of every artist. Really doesn't matter how long you've been around. Things change the more, more uh, live performance you do. What do you think the live music scene is going to look like going forward? And I'm thinking not just for seasoned professionals, but also especially for the young folks coming up behind you that are trying to make a career out of music? Well, that's the million dollar question because the future is mysterious. This is the time now for musicians, especially younger musicians or actually any musician, this is the time now to be doing your pre-production, to be writing, to be rehearsing if you can, to be thinking and planning for when the doors open again. But the answer to your question is, it's a mystery to me. I know that personally, I'm not ready to play now. I was recently contacted for a gig, and I think for the first time ever in my life, I said no. And why I don't is think that? I, I'm just not ready. I'm not comfortable. I don't think it's safe. Oh. And to be singing with a mask on tells me it's too early. And part of performing, obviously, is facial expressions. Not that that's a huge part of it, but it is a part of it because it's like you going to the movies and you're watching Tom Cruise on the screen, but he's wearing a mask. It's, it doesn't cut through. When you sing, the eyes and the face are really important in expressing the song and selling the song. Some people smile when they sing. Some people look at their toes when they sing. Everyone does it differently. But as a form of expression, the face is really important. So uh, personally, for me right now, I'm, I'm not looking at doing anything till August, September at the earliest, because I'm just not comfortable going out there. I know everyone's saying it's over. You can take the masks off. In Montreal, they've lifted the curfew. The terraces are open. But I'm just going to sit tight for another month or so and see where the numbers go. As far as young bands... They're going to be affected the most. Well-known bands, bands that are better known, 
are also affected because in our business we make money by touring. Mm -hmm. Touring that sells tickets, tickets that makes money. You sell merchandise that makes money. Okay, now if we go back, you can't tour, so there's no live gate that's gone. You're selling almost no merchandise now. Your royalties from previous songwriting or albums are non-existent due to digital and Spotify and YouTube. I don't make any money at all. So as far as streams of revenue, it's certainly been affected to a very frightening degree. If you have some kind of reputation already, you might be able to just pick up the pieces and and continue when everything comes back. If you're a younger band, there's going to be less venues to play, first of all. I know in Montreal, for the last 10 years or so, the scene has really been disappearing as far as live rock clubs. There were maybe a half dozen a year ago. Four of those are gone they will never open again. Less gigs. At the same time, there's less bands, to be honest with you, because a lot of people simply cannot make a living anymore in a band. If anything, they have to be in three or four bands, which is okay. But the old days of one guy being a drummer in a band, I think are gone. And that's why it helps if you can play multiple instruments because it opens up more opportunities for you. I can sing, I can be out front, I can play the drums, I can play acoustic guitar, I can play keyboards, and I can play any any type of repertoire that you want, from Frank Sinatra to ACDC. So it gives me uh, quite a few more opportunities, you might say, as opposed to just a drummer. If you're just a drummer, your opportunities are limited. So for young bands coming up, I guess they're going to be using the internet and posting their songs and YouTube, and I guess that's the way to go. But really, my heart breaks for for the younger musicians that are coming up. This is the last thing they needed. It's a tough enough gig anyway, trying to get in the business, trying to put a band together, rehearsals, the truck breaks down. Your manager steals all your money, you know, (laughs) you know. The usual stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Everyone goes through it, and that's how you learn. And if you don't have those learning opportunities, your growth will be a lot slower. The growth of your band, the growth of your fan base. And these things are integral to having a successful career. So I'm not really quite sure how it's all going to turn out, to be honest with you because I'm trying simply not to think that far ahead. It would be nice if it's all over and in, by September we can all go back to our lives. It would be wonderful. But I just have a, a feeling in my brain, like I did at Christmas. At Christmas, I said, if, if everyone goes out for Christmas and holidays and they're hugging and kissing, there'll be another wave. And sure enough, in March, yeah. there was another wave. Now, we're in June and again, Restrictions are coming down, the bars are open, um, and we'll see. But I'm always trying to project 12 weeks from now. Hellfield released their self-titled debut album on Epic in 1978. A combination of hard rock and power pop, the album contained two singles, Too Late, followed by Tell Me Are You Listening. Both tracks gained significant FM airplay here in Canada, and the album sold well in the U.S. as an import, 
also due in part to such tracks as Magic Mistress and Fancy Nancy. This first song is Tell Me Are You Listening? To quote Field, keyboardist Rick Lamb and I wrote it together in about an hour. Most of Hellfield's songs were written fairly quickly. Rick would play an idea on the piano. I would write lyrics on a yellow legal pad. I still do. I've talked to seasoned musicians and I've talked to this whole uh, pandemic conversation thing and was actually started talking to smaller, lesser known indie musicians in and around the Toronto area. It's obviously expanded. So I ask everybody the same question. Do you think 2020 was or is a career killer for those who were not so well established? Well, it's a career killer if you let it. It depends how hard you want to fight. Um, it's really with any band, even without the pandemic, it's always been the same. If you're in a band, you think that band's the greatest band in the world. And as long as everyone's on the same page, uh, sky's the limit. It's just a matter of how hard you want to fight for it. It's different these days. It's different because now, as I said before, you have guys that are in three or four different bands to make a living. And that, um, weakens 
the the band in a sense. I understand it from an economic point of view, but it used to be in the old days. You were in a band. It was you and those four guys, and you were at war with other bands and trying to yeah. struggle your way to the top. Um, that's kind of changed a little bit. But for younger bands, I don't know if it's going to kill their career. I think they just have to recommit and have the intellectual capacity to find other ways. How did we do it before the internet? It's simple. We went on tour. <laughs> That's it. We made a record and we were thrown out there. Go tour until you're like exhausted. And as soon as that's over, come back in the studio because you got to do another album. And when you finish that album, go back on the road and tour that, I, you know, yep. and that's okay. That's the life I chose. And I certainly, I love it. But the answer to your question is that for young bands, you're going to have to try harder. It's going to test your spirit. There's going to be outside distractions and influences. There's going to be other opportunities. Uh, again, maybe if you can perform as a solo artist and you need uh, the financial support that that provides, maybe you'll step out of your band for a couple of gigs. Uh, you'll just have to adapt is the answer. You mentioned that you've used this space and time now to sort of relax, put yourself together, get get back in the studio, start writing again at your own pace. Do you think that now that we're into this over a year that people, um, and I'm speaking actually more for the arts and entertainment musicians, have maybe learned a lesson through all of this that maybe they should be more prepared? Maybe they should think about taking advantage of times like these, but also being prepared for when the gate opens. It's really hard to say because it's going to come down to each individual musician, their band, where they were in the scheme of things. Were they recording? Were they mixing? Did they just have a tour booked? Um, it's, it's, it's very difficult for, for me to say how other bands and other musicians might react. But I think what it comes down to is we're all going to have to reappraise what our priorities are, yeah. uh, what our financial needs are. Everyone would like to be in a band with a giant PA and thousands of lights and a big. But let me tell you, that costs a lot of money to lug that stuff around. I mean, it looks wonderful, but, you know, someone has to pay for all that stuff. Maybe the answer is to pare down some. To make it smaller like rock used to be. It used to be four guys on stage, no giant screens behind them, no backup dancers, no backup singers, just four guys playing music. Maybe things will be a, a, a bit more scaled down now. Do you think artists are a little bit more adaptable or flexible? I keep hearing the word pivot a lot. Pivot seems to be the new buzzword for the past 14 months. And I had a, interviewed Samantha Martin uh, uh, in Delta, from Delta Sugar. She started using the word, she used the word pivot. And now it's like it, there was a, actually an article on it in the Rolling Stone about the new buzzword pivot. So are artists more flexible or adaptable to change? Can they pivot easier? Because of their creativity? I would think so, yes. I would think so. We just think differently. We always have. To, to, to be in this business or to write a song or... Obviously, it, it's a creative process. You start with a piece of blank paper. And my challenge to everyone is always the same. Get a piece of blank paper, grab a pen, and create something that never existed before that makes sense and that lasts three minutes. Try it. 
It's it's not that easy. But the answer to the question is, yeah, I think uh, uh, creative people are, are more adaptable, easier adaptable, because we have to be. I mean, when I'm on stage and like uh, the mic doesn't work, you have to be adaptable. You have to know what to do. You can't stand there for a minute and think about it because there's an audience in front of you. So a lot of that training will really come in handy. And yeah, I, I hear the word pivot all the time yeah. applying to other industries, but I guess it does apply to ours. I've heard that, you know, we were going to do a, this tour, but when we pivoted to a much a smaller scale tour without the lights, without the gear, just playing in the neighborhood. Well, that's an example of pivoting. So, yeah, I think we're, we're more capable, if you will, if you're a creative person, to, to it, it's built into you. And in the rock and roll business, you have to be adaptable, as you know, because, you know, you go on the road or you go in the studio or you're writing or you're live on stage. Yeah. You're always in the moment. You haven't rehearsed that moment. At least I don't. I'm not I'm not big in rehearsing. I like to do it live because you can rehearse yourself to death. Right. And you wring all the spontaneity out of it. And I, I don't like to do that. I mean, we'll get it tight. It will be rehearsed. But as far as note for note, every night I say the same. No, I, I don't work that way. But the answer is, yeah, I think musicians will be able to. And if they're not able to, they will have to. Otherwise, they'll be out of the business. But then again, we don't know what the state of the business will be. Do you think that next month, 25,000 people at a time will start going to concerts? Next month? Nope. I don't either. I know that 3,000 or 5,000 went to a concert at Liverpool about I a month that. ago. And I saw that. So far, things have been good. Well, that's great because these but are the tests. 25? Woo. <laughs> well, that's it. Uh, that's the question. Now, if you're a big touring band, you need 25,000, 35,000 people there mm -hmm. to co cover your expenses, if you will. I hate to put it so crassly, but. It's you the know, truth, though. What, well, we're not out there for free. No. Well, some of us are. But the idea is, and, and again, I don't mean to be crass about it, but like any other business, the music business is a business. And if you can't cover your overhead, to use an example, you're going to go broke. Mm -hmm. But personally, I'm not comfortable yet going to a concert with 25,000 people. That's just me. I'm talking about 30 days from now. 60 days from now, will I be comfortable? Well, it depends on the figures, I guess, and, and you know what the rate is, and is it going up or going down. But I'm being very, very cautious because I'm in no rush to get this disease. No, I don't think any of us are. None of us. Well, you know, some people, I see them on the street. I see them on the terraces. They're hugging, they're kissing, they're screaming, they're yelling. Good. I'm personally, I'm not comfortable to do that yet. I certainly love to. It's nice weather here in Montreal uh, and the terraces are open. And obviously we've been trapped for 15 months and people are just desperate to go sit on the terrace and have a beer. I get it. Personally, I'm not at that point yet. Yeah, I don't think I am either. Actually, I am, but I'm not. It all depends. <laughs> um, what do you think about releasing an album in 2020? It would obviously be a, an internet release of some kind. Um, I'm not opposed to it. I guess that's what we'll do. 
that's the way that music has gone. And music, as far as when you and I were around Toronto in the late 70s, the only way to do it, the only way to break through was you had to get a record deal. Otherwise, you couldn't be on the radio. And if you're not on the radio, you can't tour because no one knows your songs. Well, that whole business model has collapsed and it's never coming back. And the first mistake the record companies made was when Napster came along, mm. they were so smug, they were like the movie companies that said, well, who can touch us? We own it. They can't do anything without us. And when Napster came along, instead of suing them, what they should have done is set up their own portal with their own content. Instead, they didn't. And the business model has completely collapsed as far as record company. Well, there's three left. There's three major labels left. Only three, yeah. Which is sad. It's very sad because if you think of Atlantic Records and Motown and RCA and Capitol, mm -hmm. even the smaller ones, some great, great music was made. I mean, Motown and Atlantic, my, my God, it's, it's half of my musical history. But because of the corporatization of rock and roll, it all got squeezed into a very few hands. And those hands weren't necessarily creative people. They were more bean counters. And that was really the beginning of the end of the record business. Now you see the same thing with the movie business. People, everything's online. By the time that you've made your movie, it's already been leaked on the internet. So the $60 million you spent on that movie it's already been stolen. The same with music. My music's all over the internet. I don't make a penny. Doesn't seem fair, does it? <laughs> no, and it's the same with my photographs. Exactly. Yeah. And there's nothing we can do as far as enforcing uh, publishing and copyright and intellectual property unless I go all over the world and sue everyone, which will cost me a fortune. But the sad reality is that your work, your photographs, my work, my songs, they're out there being consumed or liked or used by people. And yet we can't make one penny. That That's hard. Because, you know, Pat, when I started in the 70s and got the record deals and did all that, those royalties were going to be my pension. Those songwriting royalties and those publishing royalties were going to give me a little money on the back end. That's all gone. And that's a big blow to songwriters. Because even if your song was a hit 20 years ago, in the old days, you still might make a little money. Radio stations might be playing it. It might be used in a commercial or a video game or something. So you could still make a little bit of money through your um, songwriting royalties, ASCAP, as I belong to ASCAP. Right. So, but I haven't seen a check from ASCAP in 15 years. I don't know enough about that end of the business to even speak to that, but I know that most of the people in the arts are not seeing what they should be seeing monetarily or not seeing anything at all. It's unfortunate because if you own a bakery and I go into your bakery and I steal a loaf of bread, you're going to be upset about that because you made it and the customer has to pay to get it. Yeah. On the Internet, that, 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 there's none of that. It's like you like it, just take it. Now, the point I'm making is it leads to the question, 
what inspires or motivates a songwriter to write another song? What I mean is, first I've got to conceptualize it. It's got to be in my head, and then I've got to write it down. Then I'm going to go into the studio and record it. Well, that costs money. Then I'm going to package it in some way. That costs money. And if at the end of the whole process, we put the music out and people like it and just take it, from a business point of view, I'm spinning my wheels. What is the point of the exercise? I don't know. I don't know. I know I heard uh, Paul DeLong on your show. Mm -hmm. And Paul also said he hasn't touched his guitar in a year. And it's possible that's a ripple effect from what I'm talking about. What is my inspiration to write a song? Yes, I love to write songs. Yes, I can sit down and write a song. But there used to be a financial component. Again, not to be crass, but just to come from a business point of view. What is my incentive now to spend three to six months writing it, uh, recording it, packaging it? What is my incentive? If the idea is just to get your songs out there to satisfy your ego, that doesn't pay the bills. Well, it is the music business. That's There's right. a music component. There has to be a business component with it as well. They do go hand in hand. Well, you, you and I both know how many bands don't know that. <laughs> Reminiscent of early Rod Stewart and the Faces. Featuring frantic boogie-woogie piano by Rick Lamb and searing guitar work by Dave Hovey, the song was penned by Roly Greenway of Crowbar fame. From the debut Hellfield album, this is Fancy Nancy.
it's 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 probably because when you when you get into a band uh, you probably don't have that much schooling i know i didn't uh, like a college degree for example my point is to get into rock and roll you don't need to fill out an application of any type you don't need to show your college degree you just join a band and you're in the business well as you start to get gigs and management and agents and bookings and a road crew and a truck and all that, you realize you better know some of the business end of it because otherwise you might have a hit record, but you won't be making any money. And it's a lesson that young musicians really should uh, think about. It's one thing to know three chords and be really good at playing those three chords really loudly. But if you were to come near any type of success, it's always good to have some idea of how the business works, how do you make a record, how do you go on tour. And Pat, the same thing applies to managers. For example, to be a rock and roll manager, what you need is this, a business card, a desk, and a telephone. You're in the business. <laughs> so there's, there's not much qualifications involved. There's no and schooling in that. <laughs> There's no schooling at all. And you and I both know managers, and I won't mention any names, but we know managers that have no business being managers. But you know, when you're young, when you're a young musician, and someone says, hey kid, you got a good band. I think I'd like to manage you. You go, wow, a manager. It sounds great, but it's really important if you're serious about pursuing a career in music to get an overview of where the money comes from and where the money goes. Yeah. Where does the money go? Well, you got to pay the record company for the studio. That's not free. You probably have to pay your manager a percentage. Then you've got an agent. He probably wants some money. You've probably got a road crew. They need to be paid. You got the guys in the band. They want to be paid. Any type of promotion you're going to do is probably going to cost money. So you come down to, income versus outgo and don't forget that splashy launch party where does that money come from exactly <laughs> and so the further you get into the process the yeah. more money it's going to require to move the ball forward and the reason that we signed with companies in the old days with record companies is because they gave us the money they were the bank and they said okay we signed you and now here's here's the budget but of course pat all that money you owed back to the record company yeah. And that's why a lot of bands never make any money. Never make any money. Fleetwood Mac, the first five albums, they were completely broke. They weren't making a penny. Thank God for rumors. <laughs> that was, I know, I said that was the same with Queen. It was exactly the same with Queen. The first four albums, they were in such debt that if they didn't make it on the next album, it was all over. Night of the Opera was the one that broke them. That's right. And of course, people thought that those three previous albums by Queen, they thought, wow, these guys are famous. They must be millionaires. They were not. No. A lot of, a lot of what we do is bluff and image. <laughs> they were but collecting they were 40 pounds a week. John Deacon had to go to management to ask for extra money so he could marry his fiance. Imagine. That's sad. Imagine that. No. But, you know, the public never sees that end of it. And rightfully so. I mean, they shouldn't be aware of some of that stuff. All they want to see is the band on stage. 
So I, well, we try not to project or carry any of that with us. But, you know, in this business, you, uh, we've been through so much, you and I. We've seen the business change. You and I remember going to the gas works on a Monday night. It was packed, just packed. Love Tuesday it. night, packed. Wednesday, just packed. And we played there. Hellfield played there many, many times. It didn't matter what day of the week it was. It was packed. You go to a bar now on a Monday night. There's nobody there. What happened? Well, kids got older. What did happen? Kid, <laughs> kids got older. In those days, I was 22 years old. I'm 65 now. People that were in my audience are now in their late 50s. People in their late 50s don't tend to go out to nightclubs and bars as much as they used to because they have kids and jobs and mortgages and the station wagon. And as the demograph changed, a lot of these clubs have closed. I know that in, in Montreal, uh, we were playing a wonderful club, which has since closed, unfortunately. And about 11, 12 o'clock at night, you'd see the crowd thinning out. And I'm like, what's going on? It's midnight. Well, they're old. <laughs> they got to get up early tomorrow. But what about the younger crew? I mean, you still don't see them going out the way we used to in our late teens and early 20s. They're That's not doing true. that now to see live bands on a Friday, well, Friday, Saturday night, maybe Thursday, but Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, dead in the water. Well, I think maybe those that that particular demograph of audience is going to other venues to listen to other types of music as opposed to, you know, what you and I know, hard rock music, hard rock music. Uh, obviously, the, the biggest uh, musical style in the last four, five, eight, 10, 12 years is hip hop and rap. And as much as you or I don't like it or can't deal with it or thought it was a fad, the fact of the matter is that if you watch the Billboard Music Awards, it's all rap, it's all hip-hop. I don't know any of those acts. I don't know any of those songs. But I know these guys are selling millions and millions of records. The difference is this, Pat, and it's quite remarkable. In the old days, and I sound like an old man, in the old days, 70s and 80s, you were in a band, you made a record, you were on tour. Man, I was in heaven. I was just in heaven. My songs were on the radio. Yep. It was just, I, I, I had reached my dream. I think the big difference today is this. I think a lot of musicians use music as a platform initially to get known. Once you've got the type of exposure you were looking for, then designer watches, designer clothes, sunglasses, in other words, music is a jumping off point for some acts, especially hip hop acts. Not, not specifically, because I can think of some rock stars that have done the same thing. But I think that music has now become almost a platform to jump off to merchandising. And it's sad. I don't know if you agree, but I see that a lot because I'm thinking, this guy's selling sunglasses. What does he know about sunglasses? This guy's selling sandals and suits and ties. You were a guitarist in a rock band last time I looked. Yeah, it's actually, that's an interesting point, because if you look at hip-hop and rap culture, um, quick pop question for you. Who was the first individual who used rap in a rock song? Female well, artist. It, uh, female? 
Let me think on that. White. Can... Hmm. If I you read know. my column, you would have read that. Who was it? <laughs> Debbie Harry in Rapture. Oh, that's right. First Rapture. time they ever heard rap. Yeah. But I go back. I go back way before yeah. that. If you listen to James Brown. Oh yeah. James Brown is rapping. Yeah. If you listen to Muhammad Ali. Oh, they're all rapping. The... Yeah. Muhammad Ali was the first guy I ever heard rap. We just didn't call it rap back then. No. But if you if you look at what Ali was doing, he was rapping. And if you listen to James Brown and a lot of the early stuff, that's the very first or one of the very first versions yeah. of rapping. But you're right, Deborah Harry. By that time, though, rap uh, was kind of coming into the mainstream. It was crossing over Run DMC and Aerosmith. I think it was around that time. Yeah, it might have been just right around or just before that time that they were coming right. in. But yeah, your point about um, rap and hip hop culture and um, they sell fashion, they sell jewelry, they they sell shoes. As soon as mm. they become famous, all of the large companies come in or they start their own right? based on their name. So that's a really good point. I never thought of that, of that type of music and that type of culture is actually more of a jumping off point for something else not that they don't so. like the music or they don't love you know singing recording touring or whatever but it seems to be you're right a jumping off point for and maybe that's their backup plan well that that's exactly it my point is that once you've uh, done the music to as far as you think you can exploit it to use a word now they're looking for other forms of revenue because the music isn't generating enough. It's sad in a way. I don't want to see Mick Jagger selling aspirin. I don't want to see the Beatles songs used for Tampex commercials. But as you saw very recently, Bruno Mars sold his catalog. Neil Young sold the catalog. Bob Dylan sold the catalog. Why? Because there's no money coming in from royalties. And what they're saying is, Give me a lump sum right now, right? Dylan, uh, he's in what, 60, 70, 80 years old? He's in he his 80s, yeah. Right, so he's not waiting for future royalties to trickle in. He's selling it all now. Give me a big check. I would think that McCartney would be the next one because if you own a catalog of music, it's really one of the only ways to generate income. I'd be surprised if McCartney's still trying to get the rest of the Beatles catalog. I don't know what I, Michael Jackson got it, and then I'm not sure where it went after that. I think McCartney's still trying to get it back. But what do you think's going to happen to all of those catalogs, to the companies that are buying them? Because there's only, I think the last time I read, there was two primary companies that were battling it out for everybody's catalog. Well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to the catalogs? It, it depends on the strategy of the two parties that own the stuff. Some of that stuff is just going to be put in the vaults forever. Some of it is going to be monetized in some way. They'll find some ways to cut it up or carve it up or slice it up. And they'll find ways to generate revenue streams from that stuff. Uh, you know, my stuff with uh, CBS, whatever happened to all that stuff? Where are the masters? Uh, what, is, what are the legalities of posting stuff on YouTube? For example, I don't know, but I see my stuff posted all over YouTube. Does CBS have anything to say about that? Do they want to make some money? Well, no one's contacted me. I don't know. But the answer to your question is it's a mystery. 
I'm just concerned that it comes down to two entities holding all that material. I, I think that when you've got a monopoly like that, as with any monopoly, uh, it's not a good deal for the masses. No, it's not a good deal for them at all. And um, putting stuff in the vaults, I mean, look at what happened with the Universal Fire. And they're still finding catalogs, thousands of catalogs that were destroyed in that fire. All stored in one place that Universal is only recently admitting to. <laughs> it's, it's, it's shockingly terrible. Every time I do research on an artist, it's like in the, the closing line of the, of the piece... Uh, the, the the research that I found is, and so-and-so lost their entire catalog in the Universal Fire of 2000 and whatever the year was. And it's like, man, yeah. that's another one. So, Well, did they, though? Did they lose all that? That's, you know, I, you've got to take everything with a grain of salt. My experience has been when dealing with record companies, take everything with a salt shaker. Good point. Good point. <laughs> but, uh, now... I'm going to get on to live streaming um, because, of course, we were inundated with it when the whole pandemic thing first started. Everybody was live streaming um, and it got really busy, like too busy. Um, and then you had the well-known acts coming in and they were doing live streaming. So now there was competition between the local indie acts and the, and it got to be a bit of a mess. I talk with my hands and I'm going to whack this. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Can we, oh, oh, John will take it out. This is good. So. It's calmed down now with the live streaming and all of a sudden it's become more professional in Toronto. The Horseshoe Tavern is getting into it. Some of the theaters are now getting all this gear ready for really professional looking live streaming. Do you think that it is a short term fix or is it something that's going to be long term or the third part is 1A, 1B and 1C? Do you think it's something that can be used by the musicians to coincide with an upcoming tour, almost like a provo promotional vehicle. I think so. I think uh, let's imagine we're going through this pandemic and there is no internet. It doesn't exist. Right. Well, the point you just raised becomes moot. No one has a simulcast. No one has a podcast. No one is streaming. And it's interesting to think in that context, what if we didn't have this box? this little magic box that connects everyone and we can do everything on it. Um, again, the short term, it seems to be the way I've seen clubs in Montreal that are live streaming music now. And I was contacted, do I want to, and it's not actually not very far from me, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm, at this point, I'm not going to do that. I see other artists are doing it. And I would think that that will be the route that a majority will take until they feel that it's safe to go out and tour. But certainly live streaming, it can't hurt. It's all promo. It's all promo. It's all advertising. Uh, I, I think of it more as advertising than anything else, because what you're trying to do is draw people either to your site or your concert or your live stream or wherever you're trying to drag them to. So I think for the short term, this is already happening, as you've said. This is how bands are... I don't know if they're making any money. I, I'm not mm -hmm. sure uh, how that works. I, I have friends of mine that are doing it for free. Uh, and I guess some people are tuning in and watching. And I, I'm thinking that you've got to find a way again to monetize that type of performance. Do you sell tickets? I guess you do. Yeah, they are selling tickets for a lot of them. 
then there we are. Then all we've done is instead of going down to Maple Leaf Gardens to watch the show, I guess we're just going to sit on our couch and watch the show. For me, frankly, it, 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 that's not the same. The same reason is I could play my guitar right now on this screen for an audience. It, it's just not the same. And some musicians think differently. I am totally organic. I believe in the moment, in the moment. It's, it's critical to me. That means being able to see my audience, for them to be able to see me, and to get that immediate response. And of course, we've got these other technological problems of a lag here or freezing there. You don't see that at a live concert. The band doesn't freeze on stage. <laughs> that depends so, on how much they've smoked. That's true, too. <laughs> I could tell you some stories. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. <laughs> yeah, I won't. John agrees. <laughs> there you go, John. John knows. Yeah, the the revenue streams for streaming. I mean, they they are selling tickets. I know that the most recent um, Sing Toronto Vocal Arts Festival uh, just had it's uh, all focuses on acapella, and they just had an online festival, and they've I think they've done very well with it. Um, different performers coming in, they use different theaters, etc. But if I buy a ticket. I, let's say I pay $30 for the whole festival. So I've got, you know, eight nights or eight days of whatever. What's to stop me from, I bought the ticket, but having 10 people sitting on the couch with me watching the same show, but they haven't paid. And those 10, that's $300. That's they should have gone to the festival. I'm just trying to fit. This is more of a comment than a question. I'm just trying to figure out how do you stop that? How do you prevent that? I can't see I can't see live streaming being cost effective or a money maker. I see it, I see it most mostly as a promotional tool. Well, it's exactly you know, that. In conjunction it, it, with. Yeah. It's exactly that. And yeah. to take it what to take that analogy one step further. When you when I make a CD today or another band, once you've got that thing in your hand, it's a business card. That's it. No one's going to buy it. If they like it, they'll take it, but no one's going to buy it. And the sad reality is to me about 10 years ago, my attitude changed. When I realized that people wouldn't buy my CDs, I realized they were just a business card. Here, take this, see if you like it. It's a promotion. That's the reality. And with the live streaming you're talking about, if one person out of the 10 paid for the ticket, you're the person that paid, you've got nine friends on the couch, I just lost 300 bucks, now add in the fact that those songs that are actually in the performance, I'm not making any royalties on either, now I'm in a deeper hole than before you started the show. That's gonna be a problem. If you just wanna go out and do a show to satisfy your ego, okay, that's cool, I got it, or you really want to play, I get that. But in the bigger picture, if you want to continue a career by live streaming, I, I, there's got to be a way to make some money. And, you know, people will listen and say, well, all he's interested in is making money. And I would reverse that and say, well, do you make a living? Do you need to make a living? Do you need to pay the bills? Well, that's what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about it from a musician's point of view, 
but I'm wearing a businessman's hat. Most musicians I've met in my life don't have the businessman's hat, which is why they end up passing the hat around. Yeah, the tip jar. Don't get me going on the hat and the tip jar. <laughs> my hat's got a hole in it, so <laughs> doesn't I find that degrading. I find that demoralizing and degrading because that's not the world I come from. In the Gasworks world in the 1970s and 80s, bands were went in with a contract. They were paid a fixed fee, you know, and all, and, and the $10 that you paid for a really special act at the, at the door, which was rare, but you sometimes you had to pay a cover charge to get in to see a bigger act, even at the Gasworks. Um, it's still $10 today. I mean, come on, guys. But it's sad. It's, I don't think... I don't think we'll we'll see that again, and it's sad. Sometimes I go to the Gasworks page, and I see pictures of bands that I knew or pictures of us, and I kind of long for that time in a sense, you know? Yeah. I kind of long for the days when I knew it was the Gasworks, the Queensbury Arms, the Knob Hill Hotel, the Danforth Inn. There were gigs, man. There were gigs. There were gigs for now. There were gigs next month. There were places all over Ontario and Quebec. There were gigs. And there was a circuit of bands. There was Hillfield. There was Gardo. There was Max Webster. There was Babe. You know as well as I do. The scene in Montreal today, there are maybe six bands. None of them playing original. All tribute bands. Wow. Because for the last 10 years or so, the only way to make money in, in this market is tribute bands. No one else is making any kind of money. Even that's gone now. Because the venues have gone, the venues have closed, Pat, and those venues are not going to open again. It's very unfortunate. It's heartbreaking in a way. My, my engineer has just handed me a note. The conversation with Mitchell was a lengthy one. We managed to touch on several topics that were not part of my original list of questions. Mitchell comments on a number of key areas that affected musicians then and still do to this day. Has anything really changed? I've just been handed a note. Join us next week for part two of Mitchell Field's interview and to find out what was in John's note. Was it the butler in the pantry or Aunt Polly with the candlestick? This interview was recorded at Soundhouse Studio, located on Eastern Avenue in Toronto, Canada. Owned by producer-engineer John Jameson, John is also my co-editor and mixer for all the interviews we record at Soundhouse. He makes us all sound good, and me sound like I know what I'm doing. With respect for the times we live in right now, all appropriate safety measures are taken during any in-person interview recorded at Soundhouse. Many thanks go to Eddie and Quincy Bullen and Paul DeLong for writing and performing the fantastic theme music for the show. And to all of you who have tuned in to listen to what these artists have to say, thank you for taking the time and inviting us into your cars, offices, and homes. I am Pat Blythe. You're listening to Love the Music. Have a great day and a wonderful evening.